Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. I believe that Web3 shouldn't solely aim to compete with Web2 in isolation. Historically, established networks prove tough to replicate or overthrow. The emergence of online communities and service networks over the past 20 years was due to a unique combination of circumstances and a specific point in the cycle of connectivity. I see Web3's true potential and its capacity to enhance or rectify Web2 and to reverse some of the deeply rooted ownership dynamics favoring large centralized control points. What's at the heart of this discourse is our chance as internet users to regain control over our data and the value derived from it. In 2022, advertising revenue touched nearly half a trillion dollars. A staggering 68% of this sum was pocketed by the tech titans, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, and Meta. The driving force behind advertising? Our data. It's continuously mined, harvested, and used for trading. Today, I'm joined by someone who set out to restructure the way data monetization works, turning it into an asset that users possess and manage. Jonathan Padilla, CEO and co-founder of Snickerdoodle Labs, is that visionary. Snickerdoodle harnesses the power of smart contracts, allowing individuals to own their data and rent it anonymously to brands, earning rewards in the process. The platform ensures users can consolidate their Web2 and Web3 data, like searches and purchases, and lease it under the strictest privacy and compliance norms. The Snickerdoodle proposition finds its backing in data. Internet users are three times more likely to respond favorably to ads when they feel they're in control of their data. Additionally, 74% of consumers feel that businesses' alignment with personal values has grown in importance since 2021. Jonathan's impressive track record includes being the former head of blockchain strategy at PayPal and the deputy director at Stanford's Future of Digital Currency Initiative. His vast experience spans from working in the White House during the President Obama's first term to spearheading clean energy projects at Google.org, or even engaging in venture capital roles in both California and East Africa. He's an alumnus of Harvard College with a degree in government and holds a Master of Public Policy from Oxford University. In 2018, he further enriched his academic credentials as a Schwarzman Scholar at Tsinghua University, focusing on economics and business. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It's kind of funny. I think if you were to go back to my childhood, you would say, like, what the heck am I doing here in, in Web3? I was born and raised here in Silicon Valley in San Jose. That's that's home home, which I think is a rarity now with a lot of people in the technology space. But my parents were both lawyers. My father practiced law for 35 years. My mom's been a judge for going on 22 years now. And my plan was to always go to law school and be a litigator. and that obviously did not happen. I went through the whole admissions process and got in some schools, some actually pretty good schools, but ended up realizing I was not going to practice law. And so it went from a guy who worked in Democratic Party politics and was a speech and debater to getting into Web3 when I was at Oxford. A good friend of mine, Ryan Terablini, who's now over at Algorand, taught me the rope. he come from Ripple. He was early at Ripple. When I was at Oxford, he taught me about blockchain and Web3. This is now 2016, 2017. And so it was really a, a sea change moment that set me on a course of going to practice law to working in Web3 and giving up the plan to go to law school. So I know that's a bit securitist there, but that's the origin story of this direction. 
Well, so to unpack this a little bit, did you say you initially had a prior that you were going to go down the legal path because of the upbringing and because of your parents' profession? As you were going through the motions in, in high school, for example, did you think, okay, this is my predetermined path? Or was there already an inkling in your mind that there might be something else out there for you? I think it was that was the path. I mean, I did four years of competitive speech and debate and the program I was at, we won three out of four years of the state championship. It was I like arguing with people for better or worse. My colleagues will say probably for worse because I can sometimes dig into a point. But I enjoyed the structure of arguments and the logic of the argument. I had worked in politics, running campaigns and election type stuff for a long time, all through junior high to high school, actually ran the Democratic Party's national high school program for two years when I was a senior. And so there's a lot of path where I actually really enjoyed that work. It made sense if you're going to go into politics or government to have the law degree. And I think I actually would have been probably a decent lawyer if I had gone down that path. It just realization was I wasn't going to do what my dad had done, which is be a private practice attorney for three decades plus. And I think from seeing how politics worked, lawyers were really functionaries and decisions were typically made by people who took more risk and had more skin in the game. And I think I wanted to be in a spot to make decisions and impact those as opposed to being a functionary that executed those decided by others. I think that's you want to unpack it maybe more psychologically, that was really the key difference. How do you make decisions and build as opposed to execute for others? That makes sense. And being in charge of your own destiny and having more levers to be able to act upon ideas. I mean, anyone who's interacted with you and met you knows that you have ideas and you have a plan as to how to want to execute on it. And so I could see how, unless you went down the path, you know, I've met attorneys who've built their own firm. So there's a combination of being very, very skilled in the legal profession, but also having what is not a common thread in the legal profession, which is that risk-taking component. And that's something that I think probably makes it hard to continue down the path of the legal profession working for existing partnerships, for example. I think it makes it harder. I think it's tough. Like My dad was a good attorney, a great attorney, but I think he was a bad businessman. And I think Depending upon like how you enter the firm, there are people that are great at the legalese, at the law, but oftentimes they're not the same people that are good at bringing clients and doing that. And it becomes, you know, power of the purse is a real thing. It becomes those who can bring in the account receivables and the billable hours. Those become more important than actually being the best possible lawyer. It's true in every space. I mean, look, it's true in the technology startup world, right? At the end of the day, you could have the best product, the best engineering, if you're not out there finding the right resource to back you up. If you're not constantly learning about outside of your ivory tower of conception and ideation, the business is never really going to take off, right? So you need both sides to be balanced out. And I look at you know, some of the teams, you know, personally, when I look at investing in a team, I always try to find that right balance because if you have too much of one aspect, I think it's going to cause the endeavor to be a little bit lopsided. I do think that ultimately, and not to diverge here, that at least in the capitalistic system, which is really premised on the efficient allocation of resources, 
on some level, it's more important to have the ability to garner and raise resources because if you're then a pretty decent allocator of those resources, you will find the right talent on the legal side, on the engineering side, on the product side generally. But if you're not able to garner those resources, it could be a tough road ahead. Well, it's it's interesting. You talk about the notion of being a jack of all trades and a master of none. And that's been in play for a lot of things the last five, 10 years. I think about this fight between specialist and generalist. And to build a successful business, I think you need this perspective of you're like a team manager. How do you, it's money ball, but broader and in real life where you have to put the best possible product person with the best possible engineer with the right sales and marketing teams. And you basically have to be willing to trust people and you have to be willing to put together teams. And if you look at why startups are not successful, the biggest issue has always been about personality and conflict within teams, especially amongst founders. Oftentimes when there's governance rights or you have a board and things like that, and that that's really, really hard. Like it's one thing to manage code. It's another thing to manage people. And I don't care what profession you're in, like managing people, especially really, really smart people is incredibly hard. It's incredibly time consuming. And it brings out, I think the best of us, it also brings out the worst in us. And it's how do you manage those things dynamically to make sure that you get from point A to point B without as much drama as possible. Yep, agreed. And I'm certain you probably and continuously grow right in that area because you have to, right? As the CEO and founder, and you have to be able to grasp these concepts, but also be able to execute on them. You did spend some time in college in China, right? I did. I was wondering what was the impetus there and, and did you develop a strong interest and passion for China at the time? That's an interesting question. There's a, a lot of folks who I think are like very gun ho on China and I'll talk about that in a minute. My career was very much government focused and I had worked for the mayor of San Jose. I ran his campaign in 2014 and got him elected. And then I'd worked various parts of the government of the city of San Jose. And my father had been very sick and he had passed. And I had a family obligation to help take care of him and that was no longer there. And so I kind of set off to just completely pivot and change life. And what ended up happening was I had gotten a full ride to Oxford. I got an MPP at the Blotnick School of Government, Oxford University in the UK. And that was an amazing year. Really, really enjoyed my time in the United Kingdom. And I learned a lot. I had some amazing friends. And I think I learned tremendously from the cohort. And as I was thinking about this time to go overseas, I was pinged by a friend and said, hey, you should take a look at this fellowship, Schwarzman Scholars Program at Tsinghua. And I had 10 days before the application was due. And I basically recycled my Oxford application, which had been successful, and talked to my recommenders and they they wrote letters of recommendation. And I basically recycled most of that application. And I, I submitted that the morning I left to the UK and went through a whole process. Just for those who don't know, the Schwarzman Scholars Program, headed by Steve Schwarzman of Blackstone. And he's set this up to be what he calls in his words, like the Rhodes Scholarship of the 21st century. We'll see if that really impacts. I know that's a grandiose statement, but it was a year in China, Tsinghua, which is, you have Beta or Peking University in Tsinghua. Tsinghua is more of the MIT and Beta is more of the humanities. But Tsinghua was a phenomenal place. It's a 
clearly like a storied university. Most of the political leadership of the CCP comes out from Tsinghua. And for me, I had this notion of completing a global education. I completed my undergrad at Harvard, worked in government from DC to California. I really hadn't spent any time abroad. So the US, like it or not, is no longer a unipolar country. Like what we had in the 90s when we grew up and the follow-up of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the US could pretty much act unilaterally. I think that's going to be growing increasingly difficult to do that going forward. So I had this notion of I want to eventually go back to government in say 10 to 15 years, understanding how our allies think and act and got that from my time in the UK and spent time in Europe to thinking about how potential adversaries or partners that have more of a their own vested interest, how do we work with them to achieve things that are hard and require global cooperation? So this notion of completing a global education, getting a worldview is really, really important. And I realized I was at this point in life where if I didn't do it then in my late 20s, it would be increasingly difficult to do that in my 30s. So I grabbed that opportunity, went to the UK on a full ride. I spent some time working in Kenya in between my time in the UK and China, and then spent the year in China. And I think I'm better as a leader. I think I'm better as a thinker for having spent that time. And I feel very blessed to have been given those opportunities. Look, there's a way to look at this, which is you don't know if you're from the valley unless you've been up the mountain and looked at the valley from the mountain. And I think that it's just part of a thoughtful journey on your part to try to complete the picture and your ability, as you rightfully pointed out, as you progress as a professional, to have a more holistic view. It's interesting because I, by no means, a specialist of China's macroeconomic and politics in general, but I follow because I think one has to. It's such an important aspect to factor into our thinking. There's actually a great book. It was actually written in the late 80s, a fellow by the name of Wang Huning, and who's a thought leader and an advisor to Xi Jinping. But at the time, it really describes America from his own perspective in the late 80s. I encourage anyone to read that book because it's very instructive as to what became of the mindset and the descriptions of what's being written in the book and how that outside look allows us to look at our own country in a different way. And whether we agree or not, I think it's a very important exercise to do so. So anyways, I just wanted to throw that in there. A very interesting perspective that you're bringing. It's a good point. And like, I remember one of our first big sessions in Tsinghua, we had Christine Lagarde come in and she was just wrapping up at the World Bank and about to head over to the ECB. And she she gave this talk, and it was interesting about her own upbringing. And she described it as if you you have like a house, and even if you have left and now come back, and doors are closed, there's a window that's potentially open. And it's how how do you bring people to see that new perspective, and try to share it with them in a way that is respectful of what their own traditions and potential existing biases might be, and Little by little, you're hopefully able to create a new kind of consensus, but not the blockchain kind, about what the world ought to be and how things work. And it's all it is. It's like, how do you expose people to new ways of thinking? Yeah. And which, to your point earlier, is very necessary where the periods where one power really 
controls most of the outcomes and most of the decisions are very rare. It can exist for a period of time, but very rapidly others rise and you need to learn the art of compromise within this new perspective, right? That we're alluding to. So now fast forward, you said you're acquainted with blockchain, you're introduced to that concept. You obviously have seen and already learned a lot of things, especially in the policy world. How do you get to wanting to start your own business? So go down the entrepreneurial path, take that risk, and do so at a time where you're creating a business that is very forward-thinking, right? That's many, many years ahead of what could be or what will be, right? So talk to us about the process by which you arrived at starting your current business. And did you have a team? What was the gestation process? Yeah, it's a good question. Like it starts with my master's thesis at Tsinghua. I wrote about transnational regulation of digital assets. That was pretty avant-garde back in 2017, 2018. It's kind of hard to believe it's been that long, but that was the kind of nucleus. I think I entered the space in this notion of how do you think like government? How do you approach regulatory issues? I worked at a startup that was doing security tokens. That I did not wasn't the key founder, but I was a co-founder. We never saw product market fit, but we worked with a lot of folks like the FCA in the UK and others to understand the regulatory structures and went back to California, worked with a couple of folks and we set up a lab at Stanford University. Dave Mazieris, who co-founded Stellar and is still the chief scientist there is our faculty director. And then Dan Benet is our other co-director at the lab. And that was a great way to kind of get into the academic research and how do we think about things like stable coins and central bank digital currency? And the path from this more regulatory academic focus changed when I was offered a role at PayPal. And so I joined PayPal in early 2020. I was brought in to head a blockchain strategy and they really wanted somebody who had enough of an understanding of where the product could go, but also spoke government in the sense that PayPal is obviously heavily regulated with its licenses and, and dealing with these things, which are core to its business, which drives revenue. So how do we think about products and how do we think about iteration of those products that governments would find acceptable? And that makes sense if you're a big corporate, if you're a small startup, you can move a little more nimbly. But if you're a Fortune 500 company, how do you balance those concerns? So I worked, launched several products with PayPal, got to work with phenomenal people like Jose Fernandez de Ponte, who currently heads it up, Paul Bansis, a lot of great people there who are still there at PayPal. And we launched some really interesting products, buy, sell, hold a crypto. I was very proud to lead the principal architecture review for PayPal stablecoin product. And like my team on the blockchain research group did most of the lake work on everything from protocol selection to some of these really interesting design features. And I guess if I think about my time at PayPal, I was in a spot where I didn't really need any favors or things from other people in the industry, but it was really, really a great chance super early on. Now, this is over three and a half years ago to sit and listen, to sit and talk both to people internally, but frankly, to people externally. And I made it a point to put in the extra hours and I did five to 10 hours of calls a week with people who were just curious about what PayPal was doing. And if I could be helpful to them, I was just helpful to them. And I was able to curate a great network of people across the space by putting the extra time and, and trying to find ways how PayPal could potentially partner or do POCs or things like that. And 
you hear a lot of things talking with people in the space when you don't actually need anything. You can just sit and listen. And like listening is a super powerful thing. Whenever we're doing a lot of these calls, I think people in general in, in Web3, everyone is always trying to sell something. If you can just sit and listen to the pressure points on a business, you really start to understand, well, huh, you can look at patterns. And, and that's what I saw. I saw this need for what we're building at Snickerdoodle, which is data to handle growth and retention and analytics and attribution. And just the tool sets you would expect a Web2 business to have. And so that really became the gestation point. How do we solve this issue? And I, we would talk, I would talk to Jonathan Auerbach, who's the chief growth officer at PayPal, a lot. And he would always be asking for data to support what we were building. There was never really data to give him. And so I think about peer group, people who had my equivalent role in other big companies. How do we get them the data to get the C-suite or their VPs stopping to breathe down their neck and, and focus on building. And that really is what we solve at Snickerdoodle for a business. How do we get you the data, the dashboards, and the tools to build your business in a way that it is defensible and you can show metrics to your leadership, which is what any big company really needs if you want to have a data-driven business. So when you think about that and trying to solve for what appeared to be a, a glaring problem, right? The ability just like as we have in, in many other mature industries, to start developing a framework to measure, to account for what is truly going on, as opposed to imagining or referring to heuristics as opposed to the actual information or the facts. So you start there. So what is once you start formalizing this a little bit more, what is the initial thesis behind the business? Like if you think in terms of its core purpose, You've alluded to the problem. Curious to hear about what you think ultimately at this point in time, and maybe at the time, if it has evolved, right? If you've pivoted along the way, what the solution to that would be. And then my last question would be, how do you, and you're a very thoughtful person, how do you assess the market opportunity ultimately and your ability to capture that in a way that's monetizable? It's a good set of questions. I would say this. I would say... The problem we think is pretty direct in what we're solving. People need data. Businesses, brands need data, and they need to be able to measure. We solve that very, very easily. You can do it now with some of the innovations the tech team has come up the last quarter alone. In about 30 seconds, onboarding for a brand or a business, and our end users can get this data wallet experience and cryptographically consent with the same ease of signing into a DAP. So you don't have to download anything. You don't have to leave the website. So we're very proud of the work the team has done to streamline and make this easy. But to your core question here, I think it goes to a much deeper principle. We started this company, I think our goal was to really take a look at how do you do like Web3 advertising and how do you do this in a way that's privacy first? And that's hard. That takes time. And the feedback we got from early customers and design partners was theoretically great, but we don't have the ability to target. And if once you have the ability to target, we're all ears in how to do this. And so if I were to summarize the core mission and philosophy of the company, it really is moving the aggregation point of data away from big tech into the individual. And if we're talking about big paradigm shifts, if you now have the individual as the chief and best source of his or her data, that opens up remarkable innovation to business and use cases and potential for monetization. 
And it really, I think, achieves some of the values that we hold super, super dear in Web3. So we know that we're solving this immediate need of brands and businesses needing data. And we have this long-term vision of basically inverting the model of how data works right now. And this is super, super core to how we've built the product. Snickerdoodle is a data company that does not own any data. We're very, very proud of that fact. The data is owned and custodied by the individual, people like you, people like me. Even as CEO of the company, there's nothing I can do to force the release of your data. It is permission controlled. We think on a road to monetization in the long term, and that allows really powerful applications of what you can do for Web2 data. It obviously gives you the best in class Web3 data, and it, I think, is holds true to this notion of consent and holds true to this notion of people should be masters of their fate. If you think about the read, write, own, we actually allow this own component to be scalable and practical, where I think a lot of other firms in the space are frankly very, very keen on basically being data pirates and getting this data in a way where it just replicates Web2 in a way that's not keeping with what we believe. So your other part of the question, how do we actually make money off this? I think the space in Web3 is difficult. A lot of folks are under economic pressure in terms of what they can afford for, for revenues and things like that. I think we're in a really, really good spot to offer a product in Web3 where good in multiple parts of the funnel, not just top of the funnel. And that gives us defensibility in a moat. But to be candid, I think we're going to probably make more money in some of these Web2 use cases. The tech we're very, very proud of can do amazing things as a data management platform for Web2 companies because we can get compliance with GDPR and have that be super turnkey. Even things like machine learning and AI, we're not going to do a pivot and be an AI company, but we can be picks and shuffles for AI because our data architecture allows folks to deal with things like consent and remuneration and these types of structuring that is causing real headaches for ChatGPT and OpenAI and these types of other companies out there. So I think we're going to make a decent book of business in Web3. And I think the ads product, which we're slated to have go live into Q2, late Q2, will drive real revenue. But the truth is Snickerdoodle isn't a blockchain company. Snickerdoodle is a data company with blockchain and Web3 as a wedge. And if we have it in that perspective, our addressable market is much, much larger. And I think our because velocity becomes a bit easier because we're not going to be dependent upon the pace of Web3 innovation and market adoption. Everything, I mean, I, when I listen to you, and this is not the first time we've talked about it, and I hear you refine, it's not a narrative. It's, it's, a, it's a high conviction, very thorough plan. And I think, you know, one that I subscribe personally, and I'm biased, obviously, because I subscribe wholeheartedly to your vision that ultimately this whole notion that there is a separate Web3 world and universe of adoption that's going to exist in a vacuum, in isolation, to me, is just not sustainable. The way you're presenting it, where Web3 is really an additional layer that allows certain mechanisms or certain primitives to be inverted, right? If you go back to your first point about the data and who controls the ownership and who controls the monetization path for that data in a way that's more fair and more in end users control doesn't have to exist 
outside of Web2. It can exist within Web2. It's just saying we have new technology now that allows us to manage these things better. And it allows us to redistribute the rents that are previously accruing to one specific set of players. And I think that's incredibly compelling because I'll take another example. We've all seen the growth of friend tech over the summer, right? And if you think about the onboarding and if you think about how it ties into an existing, in this case, X or formerly Twitter community and plays on that and ties into those existing relationships and those existing habits, right? That's actually saying we are not going to exist in isolation. We're going to take an existing world and we're going to make it better. And here's how we're going to make it. And I'm not arguing that Frentech makes Web2 better or not. I'm just saying it is an additional layer and an evolution. And back to some of the points that you made around actual business models. We think about Web2, a lot of it is machine learning, deep learning, AI, using data that users have committed to the infrastructure with very little control over where they have very little control as to how the data is being used, but also how it's being monetized. And I think it's only fair that users might want to have a say in it, even though realistically, they'll continue to delegate a lot of that, but at least have the option to say, well, if someone's making a dollar out of my data, I can decide to opt out. Or I could say, you know what, I want a percentage of that money because without my data, your model doesn't work. I think that's accurate. And it's, it's, if data is the petroleum of the century and going forward, like we're in a spot, we're not going to be like a Chevron or, or Texaco type thing in terms of a massive thing. And we're going to get oil from one giant reservoir. But think about oil spigots and oil derricks on, on multiple sites. Like everybody should be able to have their own little oil derrick, which is their data wallet. And it's going to allow them at scale to have really, really, really interesting cohort level data. And frankly, richer data that than you would get from just being able to scrape things from the internet. I and mean, we're talking about the types of financial data and even medical data eventually that allows you to have incredibly explosive and powerful cohort level data for, for how AI ought to work. And that's difficult and frankly dangerous without the right constructs and safety re- requirements you would expect. And so we're at the forefront of trying to figure that out. And we're lucky to have Actually, my former boss from PayPal, Mike Tedasco, who does a lot of work on AI, helping us think this through as we look at how to make this into practical products in the next year. That's amazing. I'm really happy you're leading the charge there. And I think it's going to be incredibly powerful on a going forward basis. And again, it is not a value proposition that hinges on people spending their life in a separate universe that needs to be rebuilt, reconstructed, those relationships and those networks. It can live alongside and make the current systems better. Did you face any objections as you were standing this business up? I mean, the environment at the time was probably a lot different than what it is now. Could you talk to us a little bit about the first go-around, how hard or easy was it, and how did you go about finding the right resources to build the business? I think when we started the company, it was probably a lot easier to raise. I mean, it's a lot easier to get a seed company funded in Web3. A lot of firms are focused on this early seed stage and people aren't really doing diligence. Let's just be super candid. And so I think any kind of seed founder is actually in a pretty good spot in Web3, even still today, if you have a good idea and you have the right pedigree. I think as you look for scale up capital, people want to see more metrics and more 
results. So it was a little bit tougher for that first token round we did last year, but still, I think it was relatively easy. I think a lot of investors are under pressure right now by their LPs to get more data and more metrics, and they're in a real tough spot. I think a lot of VCs are frankly underwater if you think about IRR, and they're looking for Hail Marys and, and White Rabbits to kind of pull out of hats so they can find a, a way to fix that. I'm not sure you're going to be able to fix that. It's going to probably cause a lot of issues structurally with portfolio construction and VC for the next four to six quarters, especially as interest rates remain high and likely will remain higher just given what macro inflation is. But in terms of pushback, I think a lot of the pushback, and I think like Coinbase was one investor that passed in our token round. And Coinbase, it was interesting because Coinbase Ventures basically said they did not like the idea of consent. And like the feedback we got from the VCs was they thought consent was bad. They thought it would slow things down. I was actually pretty shocked from a values perspective that that was the position that Coinbase took, that Coinbase didn't want to, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but at least from the VCs, from what they said, their opinion seemed to be that they didn't care about consent and they thought an existing kind of Web2 framework would be better. So I was kind of surprised by that. I think that's carried over to a couple other VCs in this equity round we're constructing now. And it's a fair point. It's like, how do you thread the needle between scaling populations and looking at stakeholders and keeping true to the values without too much compromise? And we really kind of broke it down into three buckets of users. You have people that really, really care about privacy. And those are our mavens. Those are people that should be true believers in what we're building because we can do things that nobody else can do when it comes to data aggregation and privacy, like we, that's our strong suit. There's a lot of people who are happy to trade their privacy and their data for value. It could be cash comp, it could be rewards. And then there's frankly, just a bunch of people who don't care. We'll just click, click, click. And that gets them through to the site or whatever the process they're doing. And I would probably say it's like 50, 40, 10, 50% for the people who don't really care, 40% who want something of value and 10% who are really privacy first people. So it's how do you build a product that gets the most in there? And I think meeting the needs of the consumer. So this is designed to be as low touch for the people who don't care, but also as powerful and, and specialized for the people who do care. And I think that's been the biggest pushback point from a lot of the VCs and investors, and even some of the, the early customers is, you know, how do you thread that needle? And so we, we tell them, if you care about privacy, like we got you covered. If, if you don't, this is super easy to use and low friction and gets you what you need to do to run the business. And that's that's how we try to thread the needle and get things across. In general, so I've, I've got two questions. One of them is structural in nature. So you mentioned a token round, and this, is, this was for folks who are listening to us and trying to learn. Maybe they're thinking about an idea. They might not have the depth of knowledge and experience that you have and haven't gone through the motions. You refer to a token round, and now you said you were wrapping up an equity round. How did you go about capitalizing the business in terms of what instruments to align your stakeholders at different times in your development? It's a good question. And I'm not going to say that this is necessarily easier today than it was two years ago, but my advice would be an equity round is always simpler it's straightforward. It's what a lot of investors realize and understand. And you're going to have to, if you're anybody, any other founder out there, you're going to spend, if you're doing it right, 
you're going to spend two hundred to five hundred thousand dollars structuring a proper token round, because the legal work to go in there to deal with U.S. securities laws and these types of things and mitigating those pitfalls that becomes super super painful and a big headache. So at Snickerdoodle, we work with Fenwick and West. Fenwick helps structure our token offering, but that was expensive. Like we're not going to hide it, and we wanted to go with top tier attorneys given a desire to have good governance and desire to, to get best in class advice and wisdom on this. And so we used Fenwick and Fenwick structured this all out, but it was expensive. And so we did the equity round. We knew this would get us maybe 18 months. I had earmarked a significant portion of that fundraise was about two and a half million, give or take, to pay for the lawyers. I think it's a sad thing to say, but I think a lot of founders would agree you pay more for lawyers than you want. And if you don't pay for the lawyers, you end up paying more than you should in the long term for other headaches you might run into. So the equity allowed us to have a Delaware C Corp incredibly vanilla. And we did that in a way that brought in a good group of strategics. The, the token is the token. We structured it so that the C Corp owns 20% of the token economy, and that's designed to provide alignment between equity holders and token holders. And we think this is still something that's in flux, and a lot of it depends on business models. There's a lot of founders who think, well, I'll just, I'll just sell more token. You can only do that so many times before the market loses interest. And so we've worked really hard to find, we have a SaaS defensible business model for all the services and products we're offering, but we really see this token as having very real need in the network and very real need to make this data economy work at scale. and. We've worked really, really hard in the tokenomics and the design to ensure that this is not a security and that we're in a really strong spot to have alignment and value accrual to both partners. Got it. And would you say you are someone who is willing to share some of the breakthroughs and the innovation in terms of how that design potentially creates a blueprint for others, or you'd like to keep that your own? I think it's like, this is something we're happy to share and talk about, like, there's nothing I think proprietary about this. It's really, if you can create the system and then it's about belief, it's you know talking with investors to make sure that you're not going to screw them on value accrual and things like that. And being able to look the investors in the eye and say, this is the plan and this is what we're sticking to. And to, especially to the equity holders, making sure that they'll be properly compensated. I think the token fundraising stuff is always difficult, but we've worked really hard to have this be decentralized network and our path to doing that. Yeah, makes sense. So another question I have is, this is a situation that many founders, especially I would say that are less experienced, because I think there's a little less confidence on both parts, maybe the founders, maybe the investors as well. And so my my question is, when you talk about the feedback that you were getting from investors, do you think, how important do you think the venture community's feedback to your business plan is in the validity of what you're trying to accomplish, right? Because there's always that question, which is, well, if an investor had the right idea and the right way to go about it, they would just go out and build it, right? If it was a the next billion dollar idea. So I think it's always somewhat tricky to take the feedback Because if what you're optimizing for is getting an investor excited, you may or may not be optimizing for the right thing. In other words, getting the investor excited doesn't guarantee that you're actually working on 
a sound value proposition that will take you to what the investor actually wants you, but thinks maybe they have a better view than you do. Like, what do you think of that? So I have a couple thoughts here, and some of them might be controversial. Like the first thing I would say is the people you should talk to that are more important than your investors for your company or your customers. And really getting a sense of design partners who are going to be buying your product, like that is incredibly valuable. And it's something I think I learned along the way. And you want to really balance the input from your design partners and early adopters alongside your investors. I think having multiple perspective there is really, really valuable. Now, this next comment, I think, is a bit more controversial. I think most of the VCs in the space aren't worth their salt. And I've been in this space now. I worked a lot of stuff at PayPal. And I'm not saying I was always the expert, but I, I built things. And I think venture capital has become more like investment banking than it was maybe 10 to 15 years ago. And what I mean by that is you have a 22 or 23-year-old kid, and I am emphasis on kid who's straight out of maybe an Ivy League school, who's never actually built anything. And they're now a quote-unquote partner at a fund. Is that person really in a spot to offer a founder advice? And like, I take it with a grain of salt. I want to say I have three rules at Sneakerdoodle. My first rule is one, don't be an asshole. And the second is humility over hubris. And the third is learn something new every day. I really do internalize these three rules. And I hold them very dear. And so I balance this. I want to learn and I want to be respectful of different perspectives, but even with that framework, I sometimes find it very, very difficult to take the advice of a person who's never built anything seriously. And it goes to the type of investors you want to get, constructing how ownership and your cap table looks like so that you have a broad selection of investors that you can go to. And like a lot of it's a fit where not all the time, maybe not right now with the economic climate, but I turned investors down the last two cycles because I didn't think they were the right strategic fit for what I wanted to build as a founder. And I think understanding who your investor is, what his or her objectives are. Are they looking for a short-term cash grab on a token? Are they looking for a long-term build and exit for an IPO or acquisition? Really understanding that becomes incredibly valuable. But I would say like a lot of the investors in Web3 got lucky. They got into Bitcoin or ETH early. They got into an ICO. They built a fund around that, and now a lot of them are underwater and they don't know what to do when like the shit hit the fan. So I think the level of maturity in the VC space for Web3 needs to have a serious upgrade. And you're starting to see some of the bigger, more mature funds doing this, getting tighter on their thesis, getting tighter on the KPIs they expect and the metrics they expect from their, their portfolio companies. But like, honestly, like, the vast majority of the VCs in the Web3 space, I don't think are worth their salt. And I know and that's controversial. That's what I believe. No, and it, we're looking for statements and ideas. And this is a forum where we're having a conversation about this. And I think this is incredibly helpful as a perspective, right? I do think to your point that a lot of wealth was created incredibly fast. And in the process, I think we lost track of things like proper governance structures, which you seem to be very keen on establishing, the right alignment of what is the nature of the capital that's coming into cap tables, and what is it really looking to achieve, right, at the end of the day. And the expertise, right, not just in the technology, not just the tech, but understanding 
some things don't really need to be reinvented, right? The way you run a business, the way you structure it, the way you operate it, and having the right level of accountability built into the investment process post-transaction is not something that is new or has to be new just because a new space or a new industry emerges. So I tend to agree with you. And I think the onus is on everyone just to come to the table and listen and get acquainted with or get complete with the statements that you made, which I tend to agree with. And I think those that will survive, ultimately, there is no cheating when it comes to investing. At the end of the day, what matters is not the comprehensive, elaborate articles that you're going to publish on Mirror or Medium. What matters at the end of the day is, did you have IRR and did you have DPIs for your investors, right? No matter how thoughtful you were in presenting yourself to the world, at the end of the day, it is a numbers game. And so I think the selection will occur by itself where those that underperform, and they will underperform because of a lack of post-transaction and pre-transaction rigor in the process. I mean, it's plain simple. So could you give us a sense of how you're thinking about growth at this stage of the business, right? You're going to embark on the next stage of your journey now. You're going to have presumably more resources to be able to execute on that. And your views probably matured and have been refined. So talk to us a little bit about how you think about growth over the next 24 months. I think a lot of it comes down to this notion of like, how do we provide value and how do we find partners who can benefit from the product and and use them as distribution points? Like a lot of our secret sauce, and I don't, it's not really that secret, just comes down to relationships is we're in a really strong spot to work with a lot of the wallet providers, both the wallet as a service and the non-custodial to have really strong partnerships as they, what like Magic is doing, for example. Like we were very deliberate at Snickerdoodle and not building a wallet. We have our data wallet architecture, but we don't have a crypto wallet because we knew that would make us competitive for a lot of the market. And so how do we develop channel relationships with L1s? How do we develop partnerships and distribution points with wallet providers and use these things where a lot of these folks have their own BD teams, they have their own go-to-market strategies, and we can augment that. We've built this product so that any enterprise business, any Web3 startup can take it out of the box and basically begin to understand their user base and grow their user base. And for a lot of people who want to enter the Web3, that's a powerful, powerful thing to be able to do. So the next phase of growth for us, I think, comes down to really refining some of these early case studies and showing success stories. And then nailing these partnership for channel and distribution points that will let us really, really scale our own BD team and take advantage of these mutual alliances. And in a lot of ways, it's a nice thing to, we have that notion of we're all going to make it together. Like we're trying to really do that for a lot of these firms that are trying to go after bigger corporate accounts. And they now have the tool set to be able to offer a big brand, not just the architecture and infrastructure for minting and custing, but now the analytics and the distribution for a lot of these types of things. Is there on your desk or in your mind something that you wish you could also pursue as part of Snickerdoodle right now in terms of an additional line of business or new idea that you feel you're going to have put on pause or leave on the shelf for now as you're fully focused on execution? From the very onset, I had a very honest belief that we could do private sector 
UBI, Universal Basic Income. And I still think that's practical. I think it's probably more like a decade away, though. I think given where people are on this journey towards monetizing data, I think understanding what that the value of that is, is going to probably take five to seven years. And I've snapped my fingers and do something. I would love to have the product up and running and be able to focus on the more social impact idea of having data be a universal asset that lets people do really, really interesting things at the intersection of DeFi and finance. Like I imagine a world where the network we build at Snickerdoodle will give everybody from the rice farmer in Vietnam to the financier in New York you know, a basic set of value based on their data, which they can then do things like collateralize loans or lend against or take a lump sum. And it really becomes this universal basic income predicated on data. It's not that unfamiliar from, if you remember Andrew Yang talking about this with his data tax when he ran for president three years. It's not too dissimilar from that, except one, it doesn't involve the government taxing. It's transnational too. And I think having this done with a foundation, a nonprofit, and a tech company will be much more compelling in the long term than any government structure. So that gets me really, really excited. I think that's something that I could see being like a life work and having real impact beyond just making a dollar. But I think that's going to probably take at least half a decade to pivot back to, given where the market is, given where the needs of the business are, and given just the technological hurdles we'll have to undertake to get there. Yeah, that's a great vision. Do you envision a world also where, essentially, we think about, you mentioned the analogy to a commodity, you said the fuel, but you think about data, let's say you and I have created data maybe a year ago. So it's not live right now, but it's an asset, right? It's our data. It's an asset. And if used in certain ways, let's say in OpenAI, as part of a big, large data set, it can be used to train models, right? And it can be used to augment the capabilities of AI. Do you envision a world also where data as an asset and as presumably a yielding asset, financially yielding asset, because you could derive monetary value from it, gets repackaged almost like we have repackaged mortgages and in bundles where we pool mortgage loans in order to create some kind of financial outcome. Do you envision a world where data becomes that type of asset? I think it does. Like, I mean, it's going to take us a while to get there. And I know my lawyer is going to probably be mad I'm talking about this, but like, I genuinely believe you're going to see like data bonds and people will be able to basically purchase these things. And it's not just the individual, like it's one thing, and it comes down to this right now in data brokering, you are selling raw data. And like, once you sell that raw data now belongs to the other party at Snickerdoodle, we never actually sell the raw data. The way we've predicated everything is lease like data leases and you're leasing data. You're getting the outputs you would expect after applying their algorithm or machine learning model, whatever it might be, but you're never revealing that raw input. And because of that design flip, data becomes renewable asset. And if you're able to have it as a renewable asset that has these kind of cash flows attached to it, you can theoretically build this data yielding product. Now that's for the individual. And that becomes more interesting once you have millions of people doing that, not you know a thousand. You need statistically larger sample size to make that practical. But it also can apply to businesses. There's no reason why Blackstone just got added to the S&P 500 this week. Blackstone, for example, 
you know, Mr. Schwartzman, big believer in data, setting up a bunch of AI and data stuff at Oxford. And there's no reason why Blackstone, which has all this data from its portfolio companies, couldn't treat that as an asset that adds to their bottom line. And if Blackstone's data is worth, I don't know, 5% of its market cap, you've now increased their market cap by 5%. That's a meaningful amount of value that you just created that is an ROI for the investor. So I think a lot of companies being able to access that data, to share it, and to derive value from it and treat it as something that can be quantified, I think that's inevitable. I'm not sure if it's going to happen in five years or 20 years, but I think that is inevitable over the course of our lifetime. And that impacts theoretically trillions of dollars of market opportunity have done properly. You know, you talked during our conversation, I, I think it's a nice conclusion, but going back to your intellectual upbringing of policymaking and academic upbringing, and you harbored maybe a vision or a plan. You said you used a, the figure 15 years. You're going to be very busy building this business. And what an incredible thesis. Again, I'm biased. I subscribe to it. I think it's phenomenal that you're driving the charge there. But do you still harbor a wish or a desire to run for office, to go back to policymaking? At some point. I think it comes down to that notion of, there's the old saying that those who, who don't want to participate in politics are doomed to be governed by their, by their kind of inferiors. That might be a bit heavy-handed. You look at the ancient Greek. But I do think there needs to be technologists in the policymaking realm. And I do think I have a perspective that would be valuable for both California as we think about the U.S.'s place in the world. But I'm more interested in having the impact and I'm going to have more impact in the private sector than I need to be there. If I could have more impact in a policymaking role, I would definitely do that. But I think it, it's less about who you want to be and more about what you want to do. And for right now, I find the work pretty stimulating and pretty interesting. And I think I'm, I would have more impact now working in the private sector than probably in a mid-tier government role. So it's all about the impact you can have. Well, thank you for that. And Jonathan, it's been a pleasure chatting with you as always. I know we've had several conversations. I hope many more. We're both busy, but you know, if we can make time for this, I think what you're building is truly unique and very important. And I'm confident and hopeful that it's going to carry through and you're going to be able to build on that foundation. It's a tough environment out there, even for very accomplished folks like yourself to gather the capital, to be able to execute and win business. But I don't think of that many folks who have what it takes uh, in terms of conviction and the ability to convince others to do so. Thank you very much for spending the time with us today. I appreciate the time and I'm looking forward to staying in touch. All right. Thank you, John. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.